Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. By 1861, there were 250,000 free people of color living in the American South. They were signs of contradiction in the midst of a slave society built upon the concept of white supremacy in a racial hierarchy. But while they faced every conceivable attempt to deny them of power and personhood, they succeeded in raising families building communities, establishing businesses and organizations, and enabling all of these to flourish. My guest, Warren Eugene Miltier Jr., has written three books about free people of color, Hartford County, North Carolina's Free People of Color, North Carolina's Free People of Color, 1715, 1885, and Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South. Warren Eugene Miltier Jr. is Assistant Professor of History at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Warren, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let's define terms first. Why, you know, from the very beginning, you've been using the term free people of color from way back when, whenever this was, you published this book about basically the county from which your ancestors came. So why free people of color? Because in the modern ear, it seems kind of odd. Right. Yeah. So I chose the term free people of color, first of all, because it seems to have been the most common term for the group of people that I'm talking about in the time in which they lived. Also, it seems to be the term that most of them identified with, especially if we're talking about in the 19th century. Uh, Rarely will you see free people of color refer to themselves as uh, Negroes or black uh, in the context in which I'm writing, um, they may use those as descriptors of appearance or things like that, but generally they don't use those terms for themselves. There, of course, always is an exception, but so uh, that's why I thought it was appropriate. Also, I think that the term reflects the diversity of free people of color, which I think was the idea even in that time period. Uh, many free people of color were people of mixed ancestry. Uh, it was a term that encompassed both people of African descent and or Native American descent. Um, so all of those things, I think, play a role in the reason that this term free people of color was used. And then that's why I've decided to use it. And furthermore, I guess I should also state, too, that uh, the descendants of free people of color are very diverse as well. And so 
in using that terminology, it reflects not only the diversity of the people at the time, but it also reflects the diversity of the people who come from the from that population today. Even asking that question gets us to a theme we'll cover, which seems to be a theme. I mean, it's a theme in Hartford County. It's a theme in North Carolina. It's a theme throughout the South is the issue of classification, which is one of the ways, a means of social control. Uh, it's also a means of, it's also a complexity of self-understanding of who are we and who are we in this place. So this is a, this is a continual theme is what do we call ourselves? Right. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that, um, again, that I think a lot of of free people of color are thinking more inclusively, um, Mm -hmm. because their, their backgrounds are so diverse. And so I think this term free people of color, something that they are able to identify with in a way that some of their other terminology doesn't necessarily work for them. And I think there's some respectability behind being a person of color. I mean, think about it, like it reinforces the idea of personhood um, within the language in a way that some of the other terminology doesn't. And also key, the, the adjective free <laughs> I mean that, oh that, yeah that, that carries a lot of power as well as a, as a self-identifier free person you know absolutely um, absolutely we'll, we'll get to that as well this because it's one of the things you 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 illuminate is uh, in your book on North Carolina is this 1859 court case which I wish I had known about but we'll, we'll get to that in just a, a second um, usually I ask people at the end of our talk how they came to this project but as I've indicated already um, these books are kind of like Russian nesting dolls. Um, they kind of, or they kind of, or dominoes falling one led to the other. So <clears throat> as I gather from your book on Hartford County, uh, I've said you, you have ancestors from Hartford County, North Carolina, but you started working on this as a sort of a genealogy family history project in the 1990s. Yeah. So, um, I got interested in the topic of free people of color as a kid trying to learn about my family history and and in that process, of course, learned that um, many of my ancestors, primarily on the paternal side, but also on the maternal side, were free people of color. And so uh, my interest in my family history led me into doing uh, research about free people who were either directly connected to me or those who were connected to my ancestors in some way. Um, and that kind of just expanded out over time. And that's kind of how I got into the project of looking at free people of color in North Carolina, um, Hereford County, as far as that's concerned. I have ancestors who were from Hereford County, so that's why I had a particular interest there. Um, mm-hmm. So most of my free people of color ancestors are either from North Carolina or Virginia. And... Um, those happen to be two of the states with the largest populations of free people of color in the South and in, in the country, as far as Virginia is concerned. Um, so by recognizing that, thinking about how what I was learning about my family and the people connected to them were maybe a little bit different than the way that other people were talking about these populations, I decided to you know dedicate a uh, significant amount of time to doing research on free people of color. Mm-hmm. And 
I mean, it it worked out beautifully in terms of like extending the circle because I, I noticed like in the back of your, uh, your book on Hertford County, you've got you've gone to all the North Carolina archives, you've gone to Howard University archives, you've gone to multiple archives, and you know where the bodies are buried, you know where the archival stuff is, and you've you've already you already every project. It's beautiful the way that every project must have led to the next. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting that you use where the bodies are buried because indeed I actually know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's not reflected in the book, but yeah, I spent quite a bit of time out in the woods uh, finding the bodies of these people, and uh, I mean that you know that's important too because it does give you this like broader sense of like where these people lived, how they lived, who they're connected to, all of that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, the the interesting thing about the books is that technically most of the North Carolina book was written before the Hertford County book, although <laughs> really? the Hertford County connection, I guess, is more central to my original interest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I mean, I was kind of doing research on multiple projects at one time. So you can be researching Hertford County and then researching North Carolina more broadly uh, at the same time. And what I needed to do to do research on Hertford County was a little bit different than what I was doing about North Carolina. Because of course my Hertford County book uh, covers a longer time period, but a smaller geographic space. Whereas the North Carolina book is covering uh, a slightly shorter period of time, but trying to cover a larger geography. Um, and so in doing that, you know, I'm, I'm looking at all these different communities at both a micro level, but also trying to see the similarities, see the connections. Because what you often find out is that, say, for Hertford County, because this is how you get into this situation I've gotten myself into, is that you're looking at a place like Hertford County and the free people of color there, and you quickly find out that they're related to the free people of color in the neighboring counties. So in the case mm-hmm. of, of Hereford County, it's Gates County, North Carolina, Northampton County to the west, uh, even parts of Virginia, the free people of color in Virginia and those in North Carolina are intermarrying and have different types of relationships with one another. And so uh, once you recognize that, if you really want to get a sense of what's going on, you've got to go into those other places. And so you end up going from one place to the next place. And uh, historically, just like you would expect uh, for other populations, you have free people of color who start off in the eastern parts of the south and they move west over time. And so you will see those family connections between people who are located in more eastern counties of, say, North Carolina, like Hertford County, and those who are in maybe the Piedmont section of North Carolina. So let's, um, I, I alluded to the very vague 250,000 number of free people of color um, in 1861. Uh, you've also said now that Virginia and North Carolina had the largest populations of free color, people of color, not just in the South, but in the, in the United States. So could we give a, a sense of the distribution of free co- people of color across the American South? 
Yeah, so basically from the colonial period, as far as we can tell, because we don't really have good colonial numbers, but maybe say that the late uh, 18th century through the Civil War, uh, Maryland and Virginia go back and forth as far as being the places with the largest populations of free people of color. Since Virginia started off at, in that top place and then Maryland overtook it during the antebellum period. Uh, and then after that, North Carolina and Delaware usually are, are battling out for a third or fourth, uh, but North Carolina is pretty much solidly there by the time we get into the 1860s. And then from there, you've got like uh, Louisiana, um, Kentucky, South Carolina, places like that. And then your deep South states, with the exception of Louisiana, tend to be the places with the smallest populations of free people of color. So we're thinking about places like Arkansas and Texas, uh, Florida, uh, Alabama, Mississippi Mm -hmm. generally don't have very large populations of free people of color. And some of these places that I'm talking about never have more than a few hundred uh, free people of color, whereas they're random counties in Virginia and Maryland and North Carolina that have well over, you know, a thousand free people of color by the time we get to the Civil War. So they're, you know, they're counties you've never heard of that have larger populations of free people of color than the state of Florida did. So it seems to have like everything to do with time of establishment. So it's, it's probably not too surprising that Virginia is the oldest place of enslavement, but also in a weird way of, of manumission <laughs> or whatever we, we can right. talk about. We don't have enough time to talk about that. It has the largest population of free people. And our mutual friend, Turk McCleskey, is doing some amazing work in the court archives, which shows that it might even have been much larger prior to the revolution than anyone has imagined. At least I, I certainly never imagined it would be that large. Um, but then, you know, North Carolina, but we, so North Carolina, Maryland, South Carolina is interesting. There's a, important reasons why South Carolina probably does not have a large population of color, but we won't get into that. Um, I want to uh, read to. Uh, I want to think first about um, some of the. Th- I want to think some about some of the themes that are in in the book, uh, and one of them is obviously the way that, uh, about hierarchies. Um. I think it's very hard for even well-read scholars to realize how hierarchical England was in the 17th century and the way that that hierarchy of wealth and class, which uh, is transplanted so easily to the colonies, um, and the way then it's added on to it racial hierarchies. So could you talk about this interplay of race of of wealth and racial and class hierarchy. Right. Yeah. So in my book about North Carolina and my book about the South in particular, I talk a lot about these different hierarchies that existed that um, shape the, the lives of free people of color. And so I talk a lot about class. I talk about, of course, race and its role in hierarchy shaping uh, gender as well. 
types of jobs that people worked, all of these types of things. And so uh, I think the primary motivation for discussing these things is one, I, I observed them in the historical record, but two, there needed to be some type of explanation as to why uh, free people of color experienced uh, life in different ways, whether that be uh, the way that the law affected their lives um, or other things. Because for instance, I think uh, something that I talk about that people don't know how to always process is the idea that some free people of color were enslavers and enslaved other people. And so if you recognize that there's this class diversity amongst free people of color and that there are some free people of color who are um, willing to enslave other people in order to make money. And that's like part of their thought process and how they see themselves within the society that they don't see themselves necessarily as uh, connected to enslaved people who they see as below them, both in the class hierarchy as well as within the hierarchy uh, of freedom and slavery then it makes more sense why they're doing what they're doing. But if you're only looking at them through uh, a lens about race, then it's like, what's going on here? Why are these people enslaving their, their, their own, which they don't see themselves in that way. Uh, so when you throw in the class aspect, then it makes a lot more sense. When you think about the diversity of free people of color that we've kind of uh, alluded to already, then some of that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I think it was necessary to talk about this, um, the diversity that these people had as far as their class position and then gender too. gender is affecting the way that free people of color are living their lives, how they are being recognized by other people in their community, which I think is another important theme because historians have often tried to grapple with the idea of um, okay, we see that free people of color in certain cases are being recognized by white people as uh, definitely human and, and maybe more than human, right? That they actually have a uh, important status in their community. And the question then becomes why? Why do they have this status? Why are they being recognized? And it's through uh, understanding the importance of class hierarchies gender hierarchies that you start to realize, oh, okay, this is why this matters because, hey, there's some white people who actually think like class matters quite a bit. And so Mm -hmm. they don't have a problem associating with certain free people of color who are are of a certain class because class means so much to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you don't recognize that about the experience of free people of color, you'll miss that and you can Mm -hmm. misinterpret what's going on in a variety of different ways, because often the free people of color who are being praised by white people are free people of color who have something that those white people recognize as valuable, whether it's upper class status or they have some type of skill that is beneficial to the community. Um, and you and so that when you recognize that, it makes more sense. And also you can see how, certain individuals can hold multiple opinions about free people of color at the same time. So you can, you will see instances where uh, white Southerners will talk poorly about free people of color as a collective, but then praise certain individuals. Well, yeah, they're praising certain individuals who happen to be people who are higher up on the class ladder 
or people who are uh, influential or beneficial to their community, or at least they see as beneficial or influential in their community. Yeah. So you mentioned, I, I think, in back in your Hereford County book, you it's also people that you know the best, and then right. you don't associate as being the other. They're they're your neighbor. It might be the guy, the interestingly named free person color, Nat Turner, who saves was it William Washington saves a, someone's house from being burned down. Obviously, right. he he might be a, just a laborer, not a, but you have very warm affection towards the guy that saved your house from being burned down. And he's different from other people. Right. Right. Yeah. That that's a, that's a great example. Um, because that particular individual we're talking about in, in, uh, broad terms talks about free people of color, sometimes in very derogatory ways, but yep. then talks about certain individuals that he knows in his community in a very yeah. positive way. You, you struck gold with have being able that he has a diary. Thank God. Um, I mean, and this gets into like, well, before we get, I want to talk about classification, but what I mean, back in the 17th century, and this goes way back to old Ira Berlin arguments, I guess, about sort of the Creole, but there is certainly, we've got some people and we can go back to the very first slave ship, 1619 slave ship. Um, We know that some people on that certainly were enslaved for their life. And other people were treated as indentured servants and released after seven, nine, however, maybe a longer period than normal. So there is the classifications. We could you could write an entire book on classification because the we'll get to the problems they have classifying these free people of color and the way that that undermines sometimes uh, racial ideologues, the laws promulgated by racial ideologues. But it's also, of course, it's our problem because we, everything, it's sometimes it's historians' problems. Everything has to be so neat and tidy. But you look at the 17th century, ain't nothing neat and tidy. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's as best as we can make out, it's a mess. Um, and it's right to say, okay, Loving v. Virginia might be the first time there were legal interracial marriages in Virginia. But God knows, you look at the 17th century court records you realize there are plenty of them in the 17th century. It's a, a plenty, a, a, a sufficient number to be, you know, that people weren't writing, oh my God, it's a black man married to a white, with a white wife. Right. If they just, they just mention it, you know, it's just there. And then right. as the modern historian looking back at trying to classify everything into neat and tidy boxes, I'm like, what the hell? How, what's going on here? But reality doesn't allow for that neat and tidy ordering. Right, right, exactly, and I think you know that that's where the the family history aspect I think for me was very influential as I took my family interests into uh, an academic interest mm-hmm. is that I already knew that about my own family. So when I'm reading these like very rigid interpretations of what life was like for free people of color. I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. This doesn't really match up with what I've seen in my family or the families of other people that I know who are descendants of free people of color. So for instance, the example you gave, like I descend from a lot of couples of uh, people of color and, and white people. So yeah. to, you know, I'm not shocked <laughs> that you know, those kind of, <laughs> but, of couples. But we existed. now, we, we, we've got it in, we've got the mold. I mean, I just talked with Isabella Morales about her book about, you know, one of these, you know, really disgusting predatory 
slave owner and enslaved woman relationship. She has children by a other man before and after she has children with this white slaveholder. Um, that's now, that's kind of, so we've got that in our head. We know that happens, but it's the, always the, it's as I think Peter Wood says on the back of the blurb on the back of your book for uh, Beyond Slavery's Shadow. What's amazing is the striking variations of things. And so right. uh, we've got one person, one woman in your Hertford County book who recalls her white father with contempt. Uh, we've got and other people, this is after the Civil War, who are obviously engaged in, um, in an exclusive relationship. Right. Uh, but they maintain separate houses, probably because of the law, but they're engaged in an exclusive relationship. And they have, those children have a very different feeling about their father. It's, exactly. you know, this is life. This is human life, it turns out. It's just different. Exactly. Um, so let's talk about, uh, so let's talk about this uh, problem then of where, so free people of color come then from these white-black relationships. They come from free blacks in the 17th century. They come from the marriage of uh, blacks with Indians, blacks and Indians and whites, and these are the these are the genesis of the free peoples the communities of free people of color, to which then later manumissions add on. Right. Yeah. So there's already these existing communities in the colonial period, and then manumission largely um, changes that 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 composition as we get into the late 1700s, early 19th century. Uh, I would say maybe the exception is the the Spanish colonies. Uh, manumission is a little bit more permissible in those mm-hmm. communities than it was in the colonial British colonies uh, where it was very difficult to be manumitted. And so as a result, the population in the British colonies, especially places like North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, the colonial period, do tend to be people who are uh, of some mixed ancestry because they are able to get their freedom because their mother is a Native American or their mother is a white person or their you know grandmother, whoever it may be that is on their direct maternal line. And so, yeah, that, it definitely uh, changes the, the composition of what you might expect free people of color to look like in that time period. Um, so does the revolution change things? Does the American Revolution change uh, the composition of the or the, the numbers of free people of color? Yeah, I mean, it seems that way as far as we can tell, because, again, the the numbers specifically on the number of free people of color in the colonial period is not great. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are you know larger numbers of free people of color, say, in colonial Virginia than what uh, some people may imagine. But, yeah, the, clearly the manumission, manumission is having an effect on the numbers especially as we're getting into the late 1700s, early 1800s, in many parts of the South, uh, things are changing rapidly. Who, it, you know, the way that people imagine who free people of color are is changing as well. Because, uh, for instance, if you were a person who was living in, say, the late 1700s, uh, free people of color and how you imagine them would be one thing in, say, 1775, and by the time it's 1799, you would be like, hey, this is a, these people are not the exact same group of people that 
I was thinking about, you know. So what, what, how, do, how do things change in those 25 years? Well, primarily there's a loosening of the restrictions on manumission. So in the colonial period, just to give you a general sense, there were many colonies that had laws that basically would say, um, if you are a manumitted person, you need to leave the state upon your manumission. Um, there were also places that required a lot of interaction with the government in order to have a manumission take place. Whereas by the time we're getting to the late 1700s, manumissions can take place at the local level. It's a pretty easy process. There's not many restrictions on that process. And so you, you see that. But then also on top of that, there are religious movements that are taking place. There are ideas circulating in society about freedom and there are people who seem to be very motivated by these more broad ideas about liberty and freedom for human beings. And so they are um, ending the enslavement of the people that they're holding in bondage as well. So those things together are all coming together and uh, are all those things together then create the situation that we have by the late 1700s and early 1800s. And so, you know, at, at some point in your book on North Carolina, I was like, I was like kicking myself because I didn't realize that free people, men of color, could vote until 1835. I had no idea. Right. I mean, right. I mean, you know, in Virginia, they don't want anybody to vote. So that was like a, I mean, if, even if you're white. So that's kind of amazing to me that that existed in, in, in North Carolina. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, in that late, 1700s period when the North Carolina Constitution is drafted. When people are thinking about the the social divide, the social divide for a lot of people is about class, about who has money, who has wealth, and who doesn't have wealth. And so, yeah, if you're a free person of color and you can meet the requirements um, to vote, it, it's possible. And that passes on to Tennessee when Tennessee breaks off from North Carolina. Um <laughs> Free people of color could vote in Maryland for a while, so uh, so it's just yeah. it's just uh, it's just the requirements are are male property owners of a certain of a certain size property of a certain size, right? Yeah, I mean that that's primarily the case. Um, if you're voting in like the a, a house election, the equivalent of a house election, then the requirements are are less than what it would be, say, if you're voting for a senator generally from in, in the, at the state level. Um, and of course, you know, I think the, the experience of free people of color reminds us that indeed, like voting rights was determined at the state level during this time period. And that if we want to understand how voting works, we have to understand like state politics and how that interacts with national politics and, uh, and how politicians are trying to shape um, their voting bases and the the uh, group of people who are voting in their community, because ultimately that's how free people of color will also lose the right to, or yeah. uh, well, free men of color specifically will lose the right to vote, as it takes place at the state level. Yeah. So as you say, I and mean, this is this is uh, from page eighty five of North Carolina's Free People of Color, uh, that free people of color were just ten percent of the state's population of color um, at any particular time. But, and this is key, I think, to 
the role of free people of color across the South, and in some ways across the United States. Quote, free people of color served the scapegoats of the radical pro-slavery ideologues, and as the antithesis of the argument that the promises of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness did not belong to persons of color. There's a there's a lot of richness in that sentence of because it you're 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 making you're circling the sort of constitutional and legal importance of this group of people to basically the health and future of the United States. Right. Yeah, because I mean I, I think that's that's something that I try to introduce in, in my work that I don't think had been explored much is like the, the how the role of free people of color in state level and national level politics and how they're being um, viewed within political discussions, how their existence is being used for political purposes. Expand on that. What's an example of that? Yeah. Um, so for instance, it seems pretty clear in, in the context of, of at least Maryland. So we'll talk about Maryland um, that the political parties, the, the Federalist Party and the Jeffersonian Republicans see the role of free people of color in a different way as far as building their political bases and having political power in the state. So basically, it seems that the Jeffersonian Republicans see free people of color as the natural allies of the Federalists in some way. And I guess that's because they uh, are trying to argue that the Federalists are are hierarchical in a sense about class. And so Mm -hmm. the Jeffersonian Republicans are trying to expand their base by reaching out to all white men versus just a certain segment of wealthy white men. At least that's how they're portraying themselves, even though clearly they're led by wealthy white men, just like the Federalist Party is. And so in doing that, they are saying, hey, look at the Federalists. They are supporting the rights of free men of color to vote. And they're not using those terms. They usually use something more derogatory. But uh, these free men of color being able to vote while you as a, a, a white man can't vote. This is a problem. And mm-hmm. we, the Jeffersonian Republicans, are going to do something about that. So, you know, support us, get your friends to support us, and we'll uh, we'll correct what's wrong about the voting system here in the state of Maryland. So that's ultimately part of the story as to how free people of color, free men of color specifically, are disfranchised is once the Jeffersonian Republicans take over the state of Maryland, Maryland they disfranchise free men of color. Uh, and so you see that same kind of rhetoric over, throughout, over, right, is that over, f- yeah. free people of color in some way, some, uh, in some way are a rep- represent a threat to the rights of white people, uh, be- and especially if they have rights that white people don't have. And of course, in a class-based society, that's what you are going to see if there's a wealthy free person of color and the society is focused primarily on wealth divides, those people are going to have uh, rights or privileges that are not accessible to poor white people. Uh, But in a society in which there are more poor white people than there are free people of color, free people of color become an easy target because you can gain politically if you can get those poor white people on your side 
even if you need to alienate maybe the few free people of color who might support you, because ultimately uh, you can say, hey, well, those free people of color, they support my opponent more. And because they support my opponent more, I'm willing to disfranchise all of them in order to get what I want, which is a permanent position in the uh, power hierarchy of the state or local government or wherever they're advocating these issues. And yet what's extraordinary is the way in which North Carolina and then, and also throughout the South, um, there are contradicting impulses at work, you know, maintaining a racial hierarchy with narrow classifications of race butts up against the desire to maintain rule of law and social stability. So it's like when you go into the ways that people bend themselves into pretzels, trying to figure out how to define, you know, free people of color, it's really interesting. They can never define their terms. And besides you can't legislate against free people (laughs) because that would kind of undermine the entire rest of the Republic, the democratic Republican system. So this inability to come up with coherent definitions and classifications is always undermining the radical racial agenda. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, I think some of them are operating under the assumption that some of these ideas that they have are natural, which mm-hmm. we know obviously they're not natural um, and that they are creating categories and imposing categories on people and people are responding to that. Um, but yeah, some of them that, that doesn't fit well with the way that they think they want to see the world is uh, less complicated. And some mm. of them are advocating for a world that's less complicated, which I think is why free people of color are a problem for those particular individuals. Because uh, if you want to imagine the South as a place where uh, the population is strictly divided between free white people and enslaved people of color, uh, free people of color just throw that all off and you're like it, it messes up everything that you're advocating for and everything that you you think you stand for um and so in that sense they are a, a threat to the ideas that you're preaching because people you can say all these things about people of color and how terrible they are and how lowly they are and on and on but then there are these real life examples of free people of color who don't fit with what you're talking about so what let me ask a 19 year old question why not just enslave all the free people of color (laughs) well you know as we get uh closer to the civil war that's what some uh these more extreme characters are talking about because so what's the pushback against that take things to the most extreme yeah that's a that's a real barn fire fire breather kind of solution to make everything very simple, but why does that not gain purchase? Well, because what seems simple is never simple, right? And so um, the idea that you can just enslave all these free people of color is more complicated when you have to recognize who these free people of color are. One, because I mean, there are a lot of free people of color who are indeed connected to white people, but maybe even more importantly for the uh, lawmakers of the time is that if we enslave free people, we're potentially threatening our own freedom or at least the freedom of people that we don't want to be enslaved because what's next, you know, where are we going to draw the line um, in this process of trying to take free persons and turn them into enslaved persons. And they recognize that it's, I don't, you know, it's not as easy to, uh, 
divide people as you might want to think it is. Mm-hmm. And right. so ultimately, I think some of them, especially in the case of North Carolina, reject um, the idea of enslaving free people of color because they they don't see that as a good idea for the larger society. Because, again, free people of color ultimately are very small population and for you to go and try to impose enslavement laws on such a small population, but a complicated population that is uh, interrelated with the population that you're not trying to enslave, it's not as easy as you would think. And even in the example of one place where enslavement uh, passes, which is Arkansas, um, the the divide is, is very, very unclear. I've actually have been asked about this after I finished my book. They're like, so, you know, somebody had asked me like, so who are these free people of color who remain in Arkansas? Because what happens is they pass an enslavement law and the majority of free people of color leave town. And so I started to look because there was one county in Arkansas in particular where the population of free people of color had increased between 1850 and 1860. And I looked and I found out, it's like, oh, so the problem is about classification. So some of the people who are classified as free people of color in 1860 are uh, listed in the 1850 census as white people. Mm-hmm. So you've got these people who are, you know, in between um, and, it's, and people are in the community are not so clear as to where they fit. Uh, they end up remaining. And some of them actually stay after, well after the civil war, others leave and go off somewhere else. But these are people who probably by appearance uh, would have been recognized in most places as white, but in their community where things were known about their family history, they were not recognized as such or not recognized by everybody as such. And so um, it, it was very difficult, I think, ultimately to figure out what to do with these people and how to handle them under the threat of you know, future enslavement. Well, I could talk to you for three hours about this, and there's enough in your books to talk about for three hours. Um, but I want to have to close this out. I want to ask you something about uh, how can genealogy and family history, you've already alluded to this a couple of times, but how can genealogy and family history lead to social history? Um, just to, an example, uh, you know, a friend of my mom's was tracing her genealogy back to people that came to the eastern shore of Virginia in the 1650s. And I gave her Jim Horn's book on forming a colonial society, which is a, a dense book of, you know, social science. And she devoured it uh, because it provided context for people whose stories she couldn't really recover. And that always has seemed to me that we historians kill themselves by not realizing that there's a massive audience of genealogists and family historians that not only will buy well-written, intriguing social history, but actually can be encouraged to do it themselves and add more grist to our own mill. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, I, I think I like to thank those people who bought my uh, work so far, because I think a lot of them do come out of that world mm-hmm. of, of, of genealogy and people who are interested in their families, especially like my first book, Hereford County, uh, North Carolina's free people of color definitely have been consumed primarily by people who are descendants of that community. Right. And so I think that family history, for one thing, it, it 
it complicates the stories that are just, you know, black and white or easily dividable uh, analysis of analyses of uh, communities where you're not seeing how there are these complicated interactions where things don't always work the way the rules say they work. Uh, so I think family history does a lot for that. And I think family history f- exposes the interconnections in a way that other ways of looking at things don't. So for instance, if you're looking at say Hereford County, North Carolina, and you're thinking about Hereford County purely as like black and white society, you're going to miss a whole lot of things about how, how, uh, interactions work in that community but when you recognize say that there are a lot of uh, white families that are connected to the free families of color or the enslaved families in those communities and you start seeing oh these people are showing up in records with these individuals uh, you know and they're related that's going to you're going to have a different interpretation of what's going on there than if you're just looking at it purely as like oh this is a black and white story these white people just happen to be interacting with these free people of color. I don't really know why, uh, <laughs> but they're interacting. And so you're just saying, oh, well, they interacted because that's misleading, right? So if mm-hmm. you don't know that they're related, you could make some like grand argument about the relationships between white people and free people of color that, oh, all the white people in this community we're friendly with, with free people of color. And it's like, that's not what's going on here. They just happen to be related. So they're operating as family members in some sense, uh, at least with whatever they can do with uh, within the limits of the law and the society in which they live, they're interacting. So that's a totally different story than uh, what you would see just looking at the law or just looking at the, the documentation without knowing those connections. So I, th- I think family history can do a lot to tell us about those kind of uh, situations in, in our country and, uh, and and beyond, you know, of course, the United States, because every every place has family history and family history tells us so much. Family is a important institution everywhere you go, pretty much. So. Well, my guest today has been Warren Eugene Milcher, Jr. He's the author of three books. Highly recommended, Hertford County, North Carolina's Free People of Color, North Carolina's Free People of Color, 1715, 1885, and Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South. Warren, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Uh, Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. 